Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Matt Chancy, and this is another episode of the Tax Alpha Solutions podcast. Today, um, we have an attorney with a very different skill set on here a little bit. I think it's unique to anyone that I've interviewed to this point. Um, it's Paul Raffleson, and his specialization with his law firm is merger and acquisitions, uh, Amazon suspensions, and full-service corporate law, but uh, very much so he is integrated in helping business owners go online and and sell product. And I'm not going to do this any justice, but go online and sell products and compete in that environment and the regulatory environment and all the hurdles and challenges that are wrapped around that. And we've had some amazing pre-call conversations. And I was like, we got to get all this on, on tape. So Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate the time. I appreciate being on here. Thank you so much for having me. This is really great, um, especially as a sort of former tax person, you know, I got my start in life as a tax lawyer. So it's a bit of a real sort of turn for me. But, you know, I have a love and appreciation for tax as always. So. Uh, well, it's in every, whether people realize it or not, it's in everything we do, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and, it, and, it, and it fuels those regulators that are up your client's butt all the time. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. People always say, like, you know, like, well, you know, how can you know? How do you know anything? You're a tax lawyer. Like, you know, it's like, aren't you busy on April 15th? And it's like, but you have no idea what tax lawyers do. <laughs> it's like, we have to understand all the other stuff. Like, it's like we're protocol converters, right? Like, we have to understand the nature of your intellectual property transaction because we have to convert that into something that's compatible with the IRS code. Right. So I had to learn IP law. Right. When you're working on a major MA project, right? Like, who do you think leads it? The tax team, because it's always about big tax advantage, right? Especially when you're working with GE or my, you know, my former employers, right? Like GE or Walmart, right? It's like the tax team with the 200 page deck of how you're going to shift everything around, right? To make the most tax advantage. So it's like, where do you get that experience from? Like being a tax lawyer, you know, the, the internal revenue code, you know, it's certainly the argument for flat tax. It's like a flat tax. It sounds simple, right? But nobody's arguing over what your taxable income times the tax rate is. It's the definition of taxable income is what we're arguing about in tax court, right? And that's the hard part. It's not the multiplication part. It's the tax part. It's the, like, what is your income? And so when you're dealing with huge, huge companies, like you have to be able, especially when you were in my position, which was fighting the state governments, fighting the IRS, big transfer pricing cases, you had to learn the tax. Like, I mean, we had the IRS in a room I remember one day at Microsoft, we were showing them the old Windows code base from like 3.1 Windows and the Windows like 95 code base. And we're trying to show them that's like completely new tech. 
because they're trying to attribute value to the old tech versus the new tech. And it all had to do with complicated tax stuff that you read about. But I mean, nothing to do with tax law, right? Other than that, you know, whether or not it's considered new tech, substantially new code or not, dictates whether or not how the tax law applies. So being a tax lawyer, to me, it's weird. We sometimes get bucketed with like, you know, what are you doing on April 15th? I'm like, same thing you are. I don't run on April 15th. That's not my day. <laughs> you know, that there, there's my tax accountant's very busy, but I'm not. So that's my little rant because, you know, I believe it's a little bit of a chip on my shoulder too, because people always like kind of like, like, oh, tax lawyer. Like, what do you do? It's like uh, quite a lot. So, you know. Well, it's funny you bring that up. And this is just a cat with something you said kind of triggered this thought in me is, you know, code 1031 is a real estate exchange code. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And almost every year, legislatively, topics come up about, oh, we should you know, why are we giving the rich this benefit of exchanging an asset and them not paying capital gains taxes on the real estate when they sell it? But what they don't understand and what's rarely or never, ever talked about is there are economic reports that suggest that when a piece of real estate trades because the seller doesn't have to pay capital gains and the new owner tries to take that real estate to highest and best use, that they hire plumbers and buy equipment and all this stuff. And the sales tax and all the other types of taxes that are generated from that highest and best use of that no piece of real estate far outstrip the capital gains taxes that would have been paid from the the original seller, but that never gets talked about. No, you never look at the full economics. Yeah, there's sort of like, it's funny how tax has this retributional sort of approach. Like when you talk about like criminal law, they teach you like, you know, what are the reasons? Why do we have a criminal law system? Why do we have, why do we have imprisonment? Is it about retribution? Is it about, you know, is it about setting an example? And it's sort of like the same with tax sometimes. Like it doesn't necessarily logical that we're like engaging in certain tax policies, but we feel like we must right? We feel like it's a matter of policy. We must, you know, and it's like, that's not really bad. I mean, when you look at the numbers, you know, what is it the 80,000 new agents are supposed to bring in? Like, we're spending almost as much money as they're expected to bring in. It's almost stupid. It doesn't even make any sense. Like, right? Like, like it's... It's a great you know, proposition. Why are you doing it? And you're bringing in extra 20 billion or something. It's like it's some number that is an absolute rounding error in the level. I mean, I used to deal with $4 billion issues with the IRS, right? Single issues. Right. Twenty billion dollars in the grand scheme of our government is a rounding error. Right. I mean, we print off trillions like there's no tomorrow. And I'm not I'm not saying you should or should. I'm just saying it is a fact. Right. And we're spending. So what does 80,000 new agents do? That scares the living crap out of me, because I'm thinking for my clients, actually, I shouldn't say it scares the crap out of me. I should probably be celebrating and buying a Lambo because my clients are going to be in a lot of, you know, having a lot of trouble because who are they going after? Right. My opinion right? I'm thinking S-Corps, right? The number one most ignored, right? I mean, the accountants talk about it all the time, right? Like S-Corps are statistically the least likely to get audited, right? Well, guess what? I mean, if you look at what, how many audits 80,000 agents could handle, even if it's not all 80,000, I get it, it's not all 80,000, but like, it's a lot. It's a lot of people. Like when you look at the number of S-Corps that are out there and the number of agents that are required to have a healthy portfolio of audits, I mean, I worry about the state of American business. And it kind of goes to what we were talking about earlier about, again, yet another hit against the American business because from where I'm standing, yes, most of my clients are small businesses and a small business could still be doing 20, 30 million. Don't get me wrong. Like small business doesn't mean like micro business, right? We deal with business of all sizes, but a lot of our competition is in China, right? A lot of our clients struggle as they became more successful online 
working with factories in China, China, the factories in China became aware of, hey, we can cut you out. We view you as a middleman. We can cut you out, go direct to the American consumer, and we can do so regulation-free. We don't have to pay taxes in the United States. And certainly China is incentivizing to the China factories to bring more dollars in. They want more dollars. So they're really not paying taxes in China either, right? So they're tax advantaged at home. They're tax advantaged here. They're regulation advantaged because there's almost no repercussion, right? If a company in China puts lead in your kids' pencil boxes or whatever pencil, like real lead in your pencils as opposed to graphite or, or whatever, you know, in the paint, there's no repercussion, right? At the worst case, they might lose a container. But like there's no real repercussion for a big business, whereas the American business owner constantly being hit with regulation after regulation after I just, I just did a video about the Prop 65 warnings in California, which are, you know, sort of like a, everything you could possibly imagine causes cancer, reproductive harm. And it, it's like they they have this sign up even when you walk into Disneyland. It says like caution, you know, some chemical somewhere in the products or the roller coasters is going to cause reproductive harms. It's on everything in California. It's like a joke, but it's also turned into a huge money-making opportunity for lawyers because they can kind of act as private attorney generals and, and play gotcha to small businesses that weren't aware of California law because they're not from California. So, I mean, it's like we get it from the states, from the federal, everywhere. It's just we're overregulated as a small business. And every politician who says we, we're friendly to small is a liar. Like, I've learned that over the last five years. Like, they're all lying. They do not care about small businesses. Small businesses, unfortunately, need to do more to protect themselves. Um, I'm going to rant, stop ranting. But, you know, so, yeah, from taxes to everything else, it, we just got to stop. But because I just I see it every day. I'm not, you know, politically, I'm agnostic. I you know hate all political parties equally. I find it all annoying. I believe in social safety nets. I'm not, you know, I like but this is gross. Like what I, I worry about it because I don't want to see some business owner who's making like 150, 200K a year have to spend an insane amount of money going through an IRS audit. And if you've ever been through an IRS audit, like or a state or the state equivalent, right? I mean, they're going to get their pound of flesh somewhere, right? They'll, I mean, they just, their burden of proof is pretty low. They just have to put a number on you and it's on you, right? If you get hit with a $10,000 assessment from the IRS, I mean, you pay it. Really, there's not a lot of opportunity. There's not a lot of reason to fight because your cost of fighting it is going to be more than paying it, right? And your risk, right? So it's like the juice isn't worth the squeeze in those scenarios, like $10,000, $20,000 assessments. Like, unless it's really obvious and you're, you know, somebody's just really like, you know, do it in one shot. I mean, most of the time, if you're going to tax court, like you've already lost. We had a call on a, uh, when we talked before, you said, um, uh, you know, hey, you have clients reach out to you all the time for like things that are like, you know, four or five, $10,000. And then you're like, hey, go settle this for me and solve this problem. You're like, sure, for 30 grand, I'll solve your $10,000 problem. They're like, they don't understand it's not free. Right. I mean, that's the thing, right? There's a cost to legal. There's there's a litigation cost. We call the hazards of litigation, right? So in every, I used to, God, Illinois, when I used to fight with Illinois, so I fought, when I used to work for big companies, like when I was a GE and, and Microsoft, like I'd fight with IRS, I'd fight with the states. Um, Illinois was one of my favorites. I mean, they would just, they they would just play dirty. They would just throw anything at it. I mean, they would take the most absurd interpretations of their law or like literally the opposite, kind of like what we saw with the sales tax. <laughs> so they just take these crazy interpretations. And they pin it on you because you're GE or because you're Google or because you're Mike, right? So like, what are you going to do? Like, you're going to fight them. And they know, like, if they put a $10 million assessment on, you know, Google, let's say, just pretend, right? 
for eight hundred to a million dollars, thousand to a million dollars, Google will probably settle that case ten percent, even if it's totally bogus. Like that's nuisance value. It's one that amount is irrelevant to Google. It's a rounding error, and two, it's the hazards of litigation. Google figures we're probably going to have to spend X amount of dollars on lawyers to fight it, which can get really expensive, especially in tax cases. So let's just you know pay the nuisance value. So. Auditors are very good at playing with nuisance value. So, you know, maybe they hit you up with 100,000, they're willing to settle for 20. I'm just scared. I worry about the small business owner. You know, I could shift back into controversy and I think I'll be busy for the rest of my life, but I, I don't like that kind of law. I don't like practicing law in other people's misery. I prefer to help companies grow. So it's not really what I want to happen. Like I prefer small businesses. Um, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about like, let's, okay. Don't talk about tax controversy. Let's talk about what you yeah. like doing and what you do. Why you left your cushy corporate job to do what you do today. Let's talk about that. So that's an interesting story. So yeah, so what we do is we help Amazon and e-commerce businesses, but you know, a lot of whom are Amazon or multi, they're multi, I'll say they're multi-channel, but let's say, you know, because Amazon through its huge network of warehouses and distribution centers built what we kind of call the e-commerce railroad. A lot of our clients, you know, there'll be 70% of their business or more, sometimes 90% Amazon, and then the rest might be on their website, aka, you know, Shopify is what we call it, um, or eBay or Walmart.com's marketplace. But Amazon is the big, is the big, you know, the big dog, right? So most of our clients are what I would call Amazon reliant e-commerce businesses. So a little bit about my backstory. When I was uh, in law school, I don't want to say 20 years ago. I don't think it was that long, but it might have been close now because I realized where it's already 2023. Um, and I've been telling this story for a long time. So, yeah, maybe about 20 years ago, I started selling on the Internet. I was an online seller. I was flipping DVDs, um, other things I get my hands on, selling on not even on Amazon initially. It was like eBay, Half.com. Um, Wait a minute. Were you the guy doing the girls gone wild videos? No, 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 <laughs> no, no. I said flipping DVDs, not making DVDs. Because yeah. that was a thing 20 years ago. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. I remember those commercials. Like, absolutely. That was the guy at the private jet. Um, no, it was never that lucrative to flip DVDs. Like, well, what I would do was like, okay, so I started out on a Black Friday, let's say, okay, and I could buy like the Simpsons, the box set, right? Season one. Normally that's like a $50, $60 DVD, but like on Black Friday, you could pick it up for 15 bucks, right? So I'd max out my credit cards, like, which were crazy limits, like 20,000, 30, and buy all of them, right? And from there, it just snowballed into finding things through the Walmart clearance rack, but just whatever I get my hands on. I used to sit, because um, you had to send any media mail, it was very manual. I used to sit on the floor at the the uh, Philadelphia post office. I just sit on the floor and I like, sit there with my books while they would have to like literally process 150 of my orders. And it, and it would cause these jam ups, especially during the holidays. You'd have these lines going out the door because I'm basically monopolizing one of the people hated me. Yeah, I got some dirty looks when I walked out of the post office. And what do they call that when you buy at a discount at a retailer and you turn around and resell it online? Retail arbitrage. When I did it, it was not called that. They called it scamming on the internet. Like literally people would see me buying all this stuff. Like, are you going to scam it on the internet? I'm like, I, I don't know what the scam is in legally selling it for more than, I, I mean, you're selling it to me for this. And I want to sell it to the internet for that. 
I don't understand the scam of it. But yeah, now it has a fancy name. It's called retail arbitrage. And I have clients who make- What percentage of the market today do you think is a retail arbitrage business model? Still pretty high. I mean, I think it's a lot, it's an entry point for a lot of our clients. So even a lot of our clients became brand owners, like they started in retail arbitrage. Um, I would say, I mean, volume, you're talking about dollar volume wise. I mean- I I don't have a way to measure it. I'm just kind of curious when you bring it up because I see people promote and talk about that stuff online and I'm just curious. It's probably, you know- from my perspective, it's probably 40 or 50%. I've never actually broken it down, but it's a lot. I mean, it's probably, ha- I mean, a big part of our business is helping people who, who resell. I and mean, we have clients who make anywhere from a hundred to a million dollars a year in profit reselling. I mean, we've clients to make less than a hundred, obviously, but I mean, like it's lucrative. Like you can go to TJ Maxx and it is a gold mine. If you know what you're doing, if you're using apps like scan power and you have the will and, and the fortitude to go through the, process, but there's a lot of risks and headache that goes along with it. Brands don't like, for example, brands hate that you resell their products because you're breaking their minimum advertised pricing policies, right? You're posting lower prices online. So you get scary letters saying that you're breaking the law and it's kind of questionable. So there's a lot of headache that goes through it. People do it sometimes entirely online. They find products. I mean, literally people can do arbitrage within Amazon. They can find products you know, on one listing and then hold it and sell it on another, it, 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 it sell it again for more than they paid for it. I mean, it, it's crazy what people do, but yeah, it's a big part of who we support. And I like those people because that's, that's who I was. Right. So I have, my heart is, you know, I support those people. We do a lot of work protecting the arbitrage community because we, we know that those people are, those are, that's pure heart and hustle, right? Like that's what they are, you know? Why aren't many, I guess my thought, my mind would go, I have two questions. Number one, um, how closely related to that is the term that I hear used all the time called get into drop shipping or whatever, right? Because you hear that kind of thing about getting online and, or I guess you don't hold any inventory, you're just a marketer of it and then somebody else ships it and all that for you. And then I guess my question on that would be, if somebody's got enough hustle to find the retail arbitrage opportunity, why wouldn't they find a product that they could buy wholesale per se, and then just become a reseller of a wholesale product and a more traditional value chain? So a couple of reasons. One, that's actually an often, that is a common, so if I had to sort of like bucket Amazon sellers, I would say you've got your arbitragers, your wholesalers, and your brand owners, right? And drop shippers sort of fit somewhere in the middle. So if they're drop shipping like you know, it used to be more prominent in the earlier days of Amazon when you had what we call generic listings where like, you know, everyone made the same, you know, phone case or something. And it was there was no like brand really associated. But once, you know, people really understood how trademarks worked and that like you should have your own like drop shipping kind of fell out. So I see more drop shipping websites than I do um, drop shipping directly on Amazon. I, I don't see because if you're drop shipping, you're really not building a brand for yourself. You're, you know, you've got a source and, you know, usually drop shippers are good at really aggressive pay-per-click advertising or Google ads stuff, AdWords. We don't see a ton of just like true drop shippers anymore. It, it's kind of fizzled out. And from what we see, there was a time where that was popular. You know, it's sort of like the t-shirt on demand people, right? Like where they can print on demand. Like that's a yeah. big thing, right? Where it's like, you have you a, go to like Printify and Shopify or whatever and just right. you you link run it the ad and then custom prints it on demand. and then Exactly. Shoot. So you can have like a thousand shirts in your inventory of different bits of art that, you know, either you created or you licensed. Most of the time, I hate to say it, our clients never get the licenses right for that. Like they just have no idea. And it's amazing how long they can get away with it for 
as long as it can. But it's like, yeah, I had no idea. Like you had no idea that the Pokemon guy was was copyrighted. You thought that that was okay to just put on a T-shirt. I, I knew a guy that did that in college. Like every time something would happen in the national media or the news, like he would make- he would he would create have a sketch created of whatever it was, create some little catchy slogan around it, put it on a T-shirt, and sell two three hundred of them for ten twenty bucks a piece. His cost in them was probably a dollar a piece, right? And so yeah, it's- you know. But it was just these stupid things that would come up in the, the meat. Like, for example, and this is unfortunate that it happened and this will date this a little bit. But that kid that had the heart attack on like Monday Night Football the other day. Right. Like, you know, maybe he would create a shirt and say, hey, prayers for you or something, you know, for that guy and put it on yeah. and do something like that. And because it was timely, it was relevant. It was things that people were all talking about. And, you know, he would maybe, you know, in today's world, maybe he'd say, hey, I'm going to give 20 percent of all the proceeds to that kid charity or whatever like that you know who knows to promote sales yeah i mean that i mean that's this that's the strategy right uh, that's 100 percent the strategy so I'm, i mean you know i'm not surprised a lot of you know that's a whole there's all these sort of like subcultures right there's the book resellers right the book resellers the stra- the problem right now is that the the big textbook companies are basically trying to put an end to resale you know they're trying to really you know, they're, they're claiming counter, they're taking very liberal, I'll say very liberal definitions of counterfeit. I question whether they really can tell. And they're basically making it so that you would never want to sell ever a used book. And there's a reason they want to, they want adoption. They want to sell a new book. And they want digital books, right? They want to basically get rid of the market for used books because they make no money on used books. Um, where's the FTC? I don't know on that. It's just amazing to me. There's so much shenanigans going on and it's like, but then, you know, your small business client gets, you know, nailed for something stupid that like, you know, some obscure law. And it's like, they'll throw the book because it's, it's unfortunate, but like the government, I just, I never realized it's working in large companies because I thought large companies had their issues, but it's like, boy, does the government love throwing the book at the little guy? Cause there's just no, there's no hope. And they get, well, they get wins that way. And it just feels so, I don't know. I mean, look at the sales tax issues that we were dealing with where like, I don't know, millions of Amazon sellers were falsely accused of sales tax avoidance by like a number of states. And I mean, we actually just won a court case on this in Pennsylvania and said the whole thing was unconstitutional from the start, but it took five years to even get a court to acknowledge that. Meanwhile, I mean, I can't even tell you the pain and trauma. I mean, I can show you articles in the Tribune about a woman who, her name is Isabella Rubinas, Google her, R-U-B-I-N-A-S, read the Tribune article about how she lost... You know, California took thousands of dollars out of her bank account the day before Christmas, right? This woman had already had a business destroyed by COVID. She barely had anything left. They took the last few remaining bucks out of her account. Um, the thing is, she's not from California. She lives in Illinois. So how is California going into Illinois and taking people's money? Because they're violating our constitutional rights. And there's no remedy. Like the remedy is is impossible. We've been trying for five years to get really good remedy. We've got one in Pennsylvania, but like it doesn't do us any good in California. We can't even get in the court. Like we can't even get her day in court. They're just kicking us out. They're like federal courts can't hear these cases. You have to pay whatever they say and you know go through a court case and years later you might get a refund. It's like like and we're challenging that very concept. But it's amazing to me that you can have your constitutional rights violated to that extent. You have no remedy, no practical remedy at all. I mean, we are a country founded on the idea that tax tyranny is wrong, right? I mean, we were literally, literally, I mean, we threw tea into the harbor because of taxes. And yet tax oppression has been like at the forefront. I mean, that's what took me out of big corporate and into the space because I 
saw a community of people who were doing what I was doing, Amazon selling, e-commerce selling, right? Years ago, getting accused of tax evasion. I'm like, I know for a fact this is wrong on so many levels. This is illegal. It's unconstitutional. And that's what drove me into the market and said, I want to help these people. And from going in under the tax side, I learned, oh my God, these people are just tax. They don't just have tax problems. They have like intellectual property problems. They have like corporate structure problems. They don't even understand how LLCs work, right? You know, they don't know like what an S corporation is or, you know, it's like there's this just general like basic, what I would consider to be basic has somebody with an LM and tax and then what, you know, who's worked for people. I would consider very baseline basic stuff that they're just totally missing. And it's like thousands, tens of thousands of people. It's actually millions, you know, learn. But, you know, it's like, like there's no nobody helping these people. Nobody with that kind of legal experience of like 50 states and international. Because if you have that background, honestly, why would somebody making $300,000 be my a year in profit and be my client when, you know, my former client might be like GE, right? Why would I go help that person? You know, it's like for most lawyers, that's how they're going to look at it, right? I took this personally. I took it as an attack on me. I took it, you know, when they were accusing these sellers of tax evasion, I'm like, I was that seller once, right? I sold DVDs across America without collecting sales tax for many years in the early 2000s. This feels like an attack. And I'm like, I so so that's kind of what drove me into this. But and to go back to your your question, so yes, there is a progression from arbitrage to wholesale. And then brand ownership is kind of what we see, the, the, the big three. How many people make that journey and successfully move through stages? I assume thousands and thousands of people. I mean, it's probably. Well, I just not- mean, I just mean based on what you see, right? Like, I I know you can't quantify that and nail it. Yeah, down. No, I mean, a like- lot do, and a, a lot do that. Some, you know, what I, I think I'm more impressed with is there was a lot of pressure the last few years. A lot of people say, you know, Amazon doesn't like the resellers and the arbitrage. Amazon absolutely loves the arbitrage. I give credit to the arbitragers who stuck with it because I think they learn to scale their business, which is not easy to scale. Like, how do you scale a business where every day you don't know where you're going to find inventory, right? You're going to go to TJ Maxx, Marshalls, Walmart, God knows wherever, right? Wherever they have clearance inventory, wherever they have, you know, crazy deals, you're going to go everywhere and you're going to find inventory. And you're, you're basically scrounging, like you're basically scat. It's like a scavenger hunt. Your business is a scavenger hunt. But I have seen people grow their scavenger hunt business in the $10 million a year gross businesses. So it's pretty impressive, right? I mean, if you're, yeah. you think about it, right? Like it's a lot of hustle. It's a lot of hustle. They hire people. They're so attention to detail. I mean, they, they know they order gift cards. You know, they, pay, they try to pay for everything with gift cards so that as much as they possibly can, because they can get the gift cards at a discount, right? You can usually buy. So you, you buy, you know, you go to a website that sells gift cards at like 10% off using your credit card. So you get the credit card points, but then you're also getting the 10% on the gift card. Then you use the gift card to buy the inventory. So you're finding your ways to keep your margins. They're finding creative ways to keep their margins down. Um, they hire, um, you know, they just hire people. They hire people and then they give the gift cards to their staff and they hire people and they go out and they just go to every TJ Maxx within a hundred mile radius. You know, it's like in every Marshalls and they're looking for, um, they have their little phones and they're scanning everything. It's crazy. I love that hustle. I love that. Anyone can do it. I love that people, you know, it's not without its risks and it's, you know, people make mistakes, but I love that it's it's a relatively low barrier to entering. Um, what I've seen more of lately is a lot of people just kind of go straight into brand ownership because people realize like, especially after the last year we had in 2021 and partially in 2022, but especially 2021, 
and actually going back to 2019, where people were actually building brands on Amazon and selling them for ridiculously high multiples. I mean, we did uh, mergers and acquisitions, right? Fancy way of saying exiting your business, right? Right. Fancy, fancy way of saying that, right? We helped our clients exit to the tune of about a quarter of a billion dollars in 2021, right? So these are brand owners, you know, doing anywhere from a couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars a year in profit to $10 million in profit. I think it was one of the largest ones we worked on, um, selling their brands for ridiculously high multiples. You know, so brand ownership becomes lucrative because when you have a reselling business as an arbitrage business, it's hard to sell that, right? It's hard to say what's your, now you'd argue if you have enough employees, maybe you have a workforce for workforce in place, like the Bud Selig case and the uh, famous IRS case with Bud Selig and the, uh, what was the baseball team, the Cincinnati Reds, I think it was back then. Um, but realistically, you have been, you know, brand, you know, reliable source. Like anyone can just start an arbitrage business. So it's hard to say, like, where's the multiple value, right? Where's that intrinsic value? Where's the goodwill? But when you own a brand on Amazon and you built a listing on Amazon, you've got reviews and it's got a certain amount of traction on the Amazon system to where it's got consistent revenue that can be grown, right? There was a belief that that had real, real value. And companies were getting private equity funding to buy these companies and aggregate these companies. And so we were seeing, you know, six, seven, eight multiples coming out, some of these deals, um, which was pretty high for these businesses, these relatively unsophisticated businesses. Did you did you believe what you knew that those valuations made sense or it was like absolutely 100 percent you want to be on the sell side of that? We were only on the sell side. I know you no, were. No, no. And, knowing and, and, what and, and, you know, thinking we were, about it, would you have ever wanted to have been on the buy side? No, no, no. We knew we we used the we said it was a bubble. Like I have, I can go back and show you a Facebook post from, I don't know, mid twenty twenty one, saying like this is feeling like a bubble. I said there's nothing wrong with selling your business in the peak of a bubble, like as long as you're on the sell side. But I mean, no, I can see it, and for a number of reasons. One. A lot of these companies that were buying were like claiming that they knew how to do it better than everybody. You know, they knew how to do Amazon better than the owners did. They were wrong. They did not know what they were doing. They totally just made that up. They had no clue. They just thought, how hard could it be, right? If you could run one Amazon brand, you can run 20. How hard could this really be? Well, it turns out it's actually really hard. They're like, I have an Ivy League degree in something, 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 and, and yeah. I have hedge fund money or private equity. Yeah, exactly. Money. I can figure out how to sell widgets on it. Yeah. You may not have heard of this lowly brand owner. It's called Economies of Scale. <laughs> you know, and the brand owner is looking like, you have no idea what you're getting into, but okay. You know, what I always told him, I just told my client, I said, look, the part is just make sure whatever cash you get on the front end is enough because the earnout is going to be a total disaster. And it was. Yeah. And they had fair warning. Like I told every client, like we, you know, I've been on podcasts about this. Like I'm like, those earnouts are garbage. You're never going to see them. And for the most part, you know, I think the 21 who sold in 2020 had a good chance of seeing at least one because nobody wanted to admit that they were like screwing it up, part of my language, in 2021 when the market was really bubbling because they wanted to be competitive. So if anyone had a reputation for not paying earnouts in 2021, they would they may not have lost out of deals. So I think they were probably subsidizing earnouts in 2021. But by 2022, when the whole, you know, when it all came falling apart, a lot of earnouts did not get paid. So I always told my clients, I said, if you're not getting this earnout, means you're going to jump off of Brooklyn Bridge. Don't do the deal. It's not for you. You got to get that cash up front. That's all you want. Like, don't take what you, everything you get from them today is what you need. But it, yeah, it was it was a disaster. 
earnouts are a risky bit. Even in non-e-commerce related businesses, there's so many things and variables that change when you're not in control of whatever's going on anymore. And there's other factors influencing how the business is run, who's hired, who's fired, growth strategies and stuff that create conflicts. And people think like that, you know, as a lawyer, like I'm going to, I'm going to write some magic words that are going to make it better. Like, you know what? All the magic words in the world that I can write ain't going to make money grow on trees. If they don't got the money to pay you, you ain't going to pay. Like you can sue them. You can try like, okay. But then, okay. Let's say your earnout, your earnout's got to be a lot, right? If your earnout is a couple hundred thousand dollars, I mean, are you going to go, I mean, like exit M&A litigation, AKA exit litigation, probably one of the most expensive forms of litigation out there. I mean, the discovery could be God. No, it, it just, it's just God knows what it could cost, right? Like what well, I do know what it costs. Um, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. So who's going to risk hundreds of thousands of dollars at the chance of getting hundreds of thousands of dollars when, you know, and then if you lose, by the way, you've got to pay their legal fees. So you may actually lose double what, you know, it, it's just, your earnout's got to be really big for you to even think about litigating, right? So right then and there, I'm like, if your earnout's not substantial, you know, if we're not dealing with millions and millions, but then if it is millions and millions, it's like, your earnout, like, all of these, most of these companies were, you know, have creditors who have priority over you and probably have, you know, liens on the assets. And they're not, we've tried, like we would try, we would try to get liens on the trademarks and liens on the and say, you know, we would have priority and they would be flat out. No, our creditors need that. We're not giving you that. And that, you explain to them. So if you have no priority, no anything, and you're just a creditor standing in line, like you know, I mean, suing maybe is the biggest waste of your time. You might win a principle, right? Win a principle, but again, you can't make the money grow on trees. You know, yeah. you can't make money appear out of nowhere. It's, it, the lawyers don't have the power to do that. And I think a lot of litigators sometimes forget to tell their clients that, you know, because I've seen some lawsuits and I'm like, I wouldn't have filed that. Do they forget to tell their clients that? Or is it part of their business model to omit that piece of information? I'm not going to be critical of litigators. I know very good litigators. I think it's... <laughs> but it's I in the range of outcomes. It's possible. I, I mean, it depends on who the litigator is. I, the litigators I work with, I feel, have very strong moral compasses who, you know, understand the concept of the, you know, what's called a negative value claim and, or, or the juice not being worth the squeeze, as I often say, right. It ain't worth it to litigate. Right. So don't do it. But plenty of times I've seen the opposite, right. I've seen the litigators. I'm like, why are we filing this lawsuit? Like, really? You know, like, like there's nothing here. But good for them, you know. Um, I've been involved in one of those before in my life. So I personally have experience with, you know, a big fancy law firm telling you all these promises that we're going to get all this done, pay us all these fees. We can absolutely. And then when the money's gone and you can't pay the fees anymore, they're like, mm, I don't know, really can't help you. You know, I thought we thought we were going to do much better than what we did. I, yeah, I don't know what to tell right. you now. I, this is what I, so, so this is kind of what I build my practice around is like being pragmatic. Like, I just, like you said, like, you know, if I have a client who's like, my supplier owes me $5,000, I'm like, well, don't work with that supplier again. I guess. <laughs> like, 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 I'm sorry. Or, you know, my favorite of the clients who get sold, they, they have, they, you know, they have supplier contracts in China, right? And they, they get some lawyer to write up a supplier contract with their supplier in China, but they don't understand that one, contracts in English are completely unenforceable in China. So what did you really write up? I mean, the way it works in China with your supplier is either you work with 
some intermediary who has a ton of market power who can just like get your factory in line or won't work with that factory. Two, you have a good relationship with your factory. And oftentimes the saying is your factory will treat you well if they feel there's further business to be done. Once the feeling of further business goes away, that's when it starts to get dicey, right? Once they feel from you like you're no longer a business partner and then they, right? But the idea of like spending like thousands of dollars or any amount of money, like writing up contracts with your supplier, you know, it's like no amount of money, I think, unless you're huge, right? Like, you know, I'm talking about clients in the scale that I'm dealing with. No amount of money. You're not going to court in China, right? We're not going to have one of those like, um, I forget what it's called, like those, uh, you know, where it's like the dual language contracts. It's just, it's just not going it, to, it's not going to fly. Like you're not, if your supplier doesn't fulfill their obligations, and you lose a couple thousand dollars, five, ten thousand dollars, whatever it is, even if it's twenty or thirty, you're not going to have any recourse. Like you're just not going to have any real pragmatic. You're not going to go sue them in the middle. You're not going to Beijing Supreme Court, you know, and suing them. That's just not happening. So it's funny you bring up all this stuff. You reminded me. I have a relationship with a gentleman that graduated college, moved to China, learned to speak Mandarin, got in the manufacturing business. And he is partially the reason that the furniture industry left the Carolinas, like, and took the manufacturing overseas. And 30 years, 20, 30 years later, sold. So he literally went there, learned Chinese, got into manufacturing, manufactured furniture, white labeled it, sent it back to the United States. 30 years later, sold that business for billions of dollars. Oh, absolutely. Nobody knows who he is because he white labeled everything under all the brand names that you know in furniture. Like he wasn't any of those big furniture companies, but he was the manufacturer of the furniture that had their white labels smeared across it. Yeah. I mean, I bet many of your young viewers don't even know know why why North Carolina or what the significance of that is. But I mean, that was the place, right? I mean, that was the entire industry for like if you were buying furniture back in the day. It was any. Well, they know the auto industry, right? The auto industry, yeah, like Detroit, Detroit right. and all that, right? Well, right. the furniture industry was created kind of in the Carolinas. That was right. where it was based. And for a long time, they had huge industries of manufacturing of furniture in the Carolinas. No, I mean, it's the way the it's the way it went, right? It's all in China, but it's and that there's nothing we're going to do. Like, I mean, I, I see there was a moment in time. So, like last 2021. Um, the price of a container ship from China went from, you know, you want to understand what, what where inflation came from. The price of a container ship from China went from, you know, call it three grand. I mean, now it's even less to $30,000. Okay. And there's this article that we cite in some of our disclosure schedules. We talk about like, you know, high fluctuations and shipping costs that our clients experience is, is are you shipping me with a P, not a T. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, just imagine, I mean, it was crazy, right? I mean, you want to know where some of that inflation had come from, which is now subsiding, but like the inflation of, of goods is like, it was $30,000 to ship a container. The ports of Los Angeles were not running at, they were not really running anywhere close to capacity. The trucks could not get in. Like our clients were screaming mad. They were getting charged uh, fees for having their containers sit on the docks for, for long periods of time because the trucks could not get, they had to like dial this like phone number it was like dialing Ticketmaster in the eighties, you know, you just get the busy signal over and over again, over and but the trucks had to literally dial this number to try to make an appointment to pick up a container and it was impossible. 
So with that being said, has anybody looked to be, I guess you would call it onshore now, knowing that logistically all these problems could happen with offshoring in China, as have people started to onshore and do manufacturing and, and, and stuff here today? So there's a lot of talk about Mexico now. So there's like a new, people are looking at Mexico. The problem is what my sources tell me, my people who are smart and like have MBAs and like supply chain stuff and logistics. Um, and are way smarter than me. As they say that, that to some extent that might, you know, be helpful. But one, you know, the price of containers have, have come back down now. So now they're even lower than they were before they spiked, right? So it's never been cheaper to ship from China. Um, keep in mind, the U.S. government used to subsidize shipping from China, by the way. That was part of the reason why drop shipping was so successful is because we actually subsidized the price of mail from China to make it more competitive. I mean, it's crazy stuff. But anyway, back to the point. It's um, so yes, we have people looking at Mexico now. So Mexico is kind of like they're trying to make like Mexico the North American China. You know, I don't think that that's going to happen. But from what I hear is realistically, I mean, the just when you talk about raw materials, like raw, like like the stuff that makes the stuff that makes your stuff. You know, like the you know the stuff that makes the plastic, the stuff that makes the like China just has that down. They have the extraction down. They have the quantity of it. I mean, like we just don't have that infrastructure to even start producing at the scale of China. So, yeah, you know, if you're a small Amazon seller, you might be able to find something and source it out of Mexico and maybe get a reasonable rate on it. But like at the grand scale, it's it's not like it's happening anytime soon. I mean, and and China's efficiency in manufacturing. I mean, the other thing is that, you know, because it moved to China um, and Apple said the same thing, it's like they've become highly good, highly efficient at it as well. So it's it's like, it's just, I don't think it's coming back on shore. Um, there was an interesting video I saw about how much China invests in Africa because Africa is sort of becoming China's China, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there are certain states in Africa, certain countries in Africa that China has invested ridiculous amounts of money. They built railroads and, and high-speed rails. And it's all like, part of this, you know, idea that they're pushing some of their manufacturing off into, into the African continent, into the African continent and getting, and getting. Well, they have natural resources. They have low cost of labor and exactly. geographically it's closer to the Americas and whatnot. Then, exactly. You know. So they're sort of building their sort of outposts in various countries in Africa. There's, it was an interesting, I'm trying to remember what, it was a YouTube video I saw that was really good about that, but I can't remember it. It really explained like, you know, all the ways um, China. China's really taken the long-term view in a lot of things from a global domination standpoint. They have yeah. really kind of been like, you know, not going directly at it, but going kind of around the way and and taking play in the slow game, being very patient about, you know, making themselves indispensable in so many different deals in so many different ways. Oh, absolutely. They play the slow game, right? Like what they see as important, we don't. You know, we just never thought of that stuff. And it's, it's, I think it's, it's unfortunate, you know, I think um, now they're huge power and it's, it is what it is. And, you know, again, my point of view is I don't think we're going to change that. I don't think we're, I don't think America is ever going to regain. I think there's, there's this national security case for subsidizing manufacturing in America, right? In certain scenarios, right? Microchips, right? Semiconductors, like that should not, we should never be having short, you know, 
we have to think about, you know, during the pandemic, we found out that a lot of our medicine was made overseas and there's some supply chain problems there, right? Well, we should be making pharmaceuticals in the United States, right? We should have our domestic supply chains set up and spending money. Even if it doesn't make a profit, as a matter of national security, we should be built for making certain things, at least a certain quantity of things in the United States and keeping some of that knowledge in-house. In what I think frustrates people in China is it just feels like the IP theft, right? Like that, you know, our ideas, you know, I've had so many clients just on a, on a small scale level, right? I mean, this happens on such a global scale, but it's like, you know, I've had clients with one shark tank, right? And then within weeks, their product is, you know, they'll have a patented product and it'll be on Amazon or eBay. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chansey. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.